You know you could be more productive if you focused on what you do best and outsource the rest. But finding the skilled professionals you can trust with your business is hard and it takes valuable time. What if you could outsource your freelance hiring to somebody who understands your business and has your back? That's Results Resourcing. They find perfect virtual freelancers on demand for a lower cost and better outcome than a temp agency, your buddy, or somebody's fourth-hand referral. Results Resourcing helps you define your job requirements, then they search the web to find independent professionals who meet your exact requirements. They do the interviews, they vet the top candidates, and they look for skills, experience, cost, and cultural fit to quickly find you a curated, hand-picked talent pool of the best virtual freelancers who can help you succeed. Results Resourcing frees you from the time-intensive hassle of hiring contract pros. They do it for you. Go to ResultsResourcing.com and let them find, vet, and hire your next freelancer for 35% off with the code PFPOD. That's PFPOD at ResultsResourcing.com. You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. This purpose, this big P word, as I call it, has become this thing that's elusive and behind a curtain. And it's like we have to go through this like some sort of hero's journey to discover what our purpose is, because that's this is what this is why we don't know our purpose, because we always follow the status quo. The status quo will never lead you to your purpose. Taking the uncommon path will lead you to your purpose. Going against the grain will lead you to your purpose. And I'm here to tell you right now, right here today, that the way that you discover your purpose is you dial back into the things that you're naturally talented at. I'm talking about your just the things that you were good at as a child, the things that you just enjoy doing, for it to be a purpose, you're good at it, you like doing it. That's it. That's the only requirements. And if you just find a way to feed those strengths, because see, I was raised to believe that I needed to overcome my weaknesses. Mm-hmm. The truth is I need to feed my strengths. That was Mary Shores, the author of Conscious Communications, your step-by-step guide to harnessing the power of your words to change your mind, your choices, and your life. She joins me today to jam about how neurophysiology, our words, and other people's behavior affect our ability to create the life we want to live. We take some side paths, including quite a few references to monkeys and peanuts and what happens when your brain doesn't know what to do, but at its core, the conversation is about how and where to make small changes that get us ever closer to our ideal lives and selves. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. If you ask me to name the single biggest workplace time waster, I don't even have to think about it. The answer is email. In fact, a recent study found that almost 50% of the time that managers spend tending to their inboxes is spent on emails that should have never been sent to them or that didn't really need an answer in the first place. But what if you could just press a magic button and never see those time-wasting emails again? Well, that's exactly what SaneBox does. With just a few clicks, SaneBox automatically gets your email under control and filters out the messages that don't need your focus. And you don't even have to switch email apps because it works in concert with whichever email clients you already use. It also has some nifty features like the same black hole, 
where you can vanquish senders you never want to hear from again, and sane reminders for sending email reminders to your future self. See how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com giant today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash giant. I've used and loved SaneBox for years, and I think you will too. Mary, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to dive in. Um, you've done a lot of work across a lot of different you know, things. You've been a CEO for 20 years. Um, you run a debt collection service, and you do it in a way that makes people excited to pay off their debt, which is, you know, most people don't wake up in the morning excited to, to pay off debt. Um, and you've really been a student in uh, personal development and self-improvement for a while. So um, really interested to see how all this is going to come together. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you, Charlie. I'm so excited to be here. I've been looking forward to it. Great. You know, so what we were talking about in the green room, which means before we hit record, um, is this idea that um, people have learned to expect instant transformation. Um, we read the book, um, we read conscious communication, we think our world's going to be, you know, over. We read start finishing, you're like, okay, like I can, like all the things are going to change today. And that's not how it happens. Um the reality is a lot of the things that we need to do to change our lives are going to take out over time, but it's these thought patterns and beliefs that keep us behind. So with the work that you've seen and, and what you've been going, what, what have you seen on that particular um, aspect of things? Well, I, I learned about this sort of in the hard way because my, my journey through entrepreneurship, motherhood, I mean, lots and lots of other parts of my life hasn't always been a graceful one. In fact, I would say it's been rather uncomfortable. And, and as you sort of learn more about my story, you can figure out, you can, you'll be understandably, you'll know why that's true. So I think I got myself in a situation where I was always looking for an instant transformation, like go to the, I was a weekend workshop warrior, meaning go to the workshop and have a transformation in a weekend. And then what I would notice is at the end of the weekend or the week or the retreat or whatever it happened to be, all of the other people would say things like, oh, my life has changed. And I would look in the mirror and think, well, I'm the same person. I don't feel any different. Did I fail my date with destiny? And what I came to realize was if I talked to those very same people a month later, really nothing had changed for them. And what happened was they were riding high on the emotions of the event. Because when we go to an event, which I highly recommend going to them, but just being realistic to understand that when you're at the event, you're riding high on the emotions of the event. You're surrounded by many like-minded people. You've got music. You're having fun. You're away from your responsibilities in life, meaning you don't have your phone going off 24 seven. You're not dealing with work emails. If you've got a family, you're, you're away from your partner and your children. And, you know, you're just sort of on a mini vacay. So, and you're having lots of great information put into your subconscious mind. So of course you feel so good, but it's really what I learned from all of that is that true transformation happens in the smallest of pivots over a, over a long period of time. And that's why I take the chance to say my journey has been uncomfortable at times, but it's all happened exactly the way that it was supposed to for me to be able to learn one lesson at a time that got me to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. 
a lot of times what we don't think about is at these events, or it doesn't have to be a transformational event. It could be Sunday church, right? It can be whatever it is. Um, you know, understanding, um, neurology and neurophysiology can go a long way. Like when you start understanding the role that mi- that mirror neurons play in our actual emotions. So mirror neurons are part of our brains that basically look out at the world and say, okay, um, Mary is smiling. So that means you need to smile too. And if you smile, then your body starts to behave a certain way, or these other people are super excited and they're pumped up. So we end up having these reciprocal upward spirals, right, in these events. But you can also have reciprocal downward spirals, like when you were in a good mood and you met a friend who was not in a good mood and you left that meeting and all of a sudden you were not in a good mood too. Mirror neurons at play. And so you have to be very careful when you self-describe how you're feeling and you self-describe your internal narrative. Sometimes you need to say, actually, what have I been, what have the people around me been doing, saying, and, you know, putting out there and is that true for me or is it just these mirror neurons firing off? That's so fascinating. And, you know, I would add to what you said that there's research done. I heard it from uh, Morian Cerf, who is a neurologist, and he's also a storyteller. I think he's won the moth competition maybe more than once. But, you know, he talked about this really interesting phenomenon that whenever you're in proximity to other people, whether that be through a group or even you and I talking through Skype, that your brain waves begin to wire in a pattern together. And I think that that's really funny and interesting because, you know, there's those old wives' tales, right? Your grandma told you birds of a feather flock together. And then through personal development, you'll hear, oh, you are, your identity is the sum total of the five people you spend the most time with. And I think that now, you know, like neuroscience is catching up to research that would prove that. And I think that the neuro, the mirror neurons, which actually it's ironic that you mentioned that because I was just reading about that in a sales book of all places the other day where it was discovered because of the monkey and the peanut. And Mm. um, I was super curious about it, but that's a, that's like one piece of evidence that shows us what's happening and the interconnectedness between um, the consciousness of humans. Because like, you know, I got to tell you, Charlie, that I think that the next big frontier that we're going to conquer or explore is not necessarily space. I think it's human consciousness. And I think that this mirror neuron is just a just a drop in the bucket of, of what we're going to find. Well, it was like a few weeks ago, there was the, um, we found a new organ in the human body, right? It's the, um, the layer that writes, did you read about this? Do you know what I'm talking about? And briefly, so, briefly. I, thought, I was like, how does that happen? How have we dissected everything? <laughs> I like, but that's the funny thing about it is we'll link up into the show notes so you can see what it is. But basically it's a, um, it's a sheath that, that interweaves. It's kind of like the fascia of our body, right? In a lot of ways. Right. Um, but it's been here the whole time. Like we, we, as long as we've been talking about it, our bodies haven't changed. Right. Um, and so go back 15, 20,000 years, right. Go back 40,000 years. We had that organ. Right. And unfortunately, people were poking around in bodies then, too. Right. So we are just discovering this physical thing, this physical thing that's been a part of our body the whole time. And we're still like plumbing, like what's going on in our brains? Like, what's that? What's that thing do? We don't actually know. And that's what's really great when you when you read a lot of a lot of stuff from from brain scientists. You're like, we actually don't know what that thing is doing. Right. Like we know it lights up, but we don't know why. Right. And I don't know why Mary's lights up and Charlie doesn't, right? We're still figuring that out. And that's at the physical level, right? That's at the things we can track, not even at the how do all of these things relate together, right? Whether you want to talk about some sort of, 
you know, dualism between mind and body, right? Where the mind is that non-physical thing, or whether you want to talk about it in straight up physical terms, like this phenomena that is thinking and brainwaves, like we don't understand a lot about what's going on. We've understood a whole lot in the last 30 years, but what are we going to learn in the next 30 years? You know, I can't wait to find out. Can't wait to find out. Indeed. Um, reminds me. So just bear with me for a little, cause I want to hear about the monkey and the peanut here in just a second. So, um, so what's, there's a, there's a topic discussed in philosophy, which is the great indignities of science, right? And so the first great indignity happened through Copernicus, which was, we're not the center of the universe. Um, the second great indignity was, um, we're not a, a special human, right? Or a special animal, right? We're just, an, or excuse me, we're not this separate creature than animals. We're just an animal, right? Just another one that's this evolved in this sort of way. We got that one by Darwin. The third one is um, from... Um, it's really Freud and psychologists, which is, you know, we're not even sure, or we're not even the type of internal beings that we thought we were, right? We're not somehow internally special. And I'm butchering that, but I just want people to think about, um, the ways we think about ourselves and our world and just how science can be humbling, but also at the same time, really fascinating and intriguing because the more that we learn there, the more we learn that maybe the reasons we're making decisions are not necessarily the reasons we're thinking of. I'm thinking of, of Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast and slow on that one. So um, that just occurred to me as we were thinking about, like, what else do we have to learn about this? Um, tell us about the monkey and the peanut, though. Well, and I've got another thing with the monkeys that um, have you heard of the hundredth monkey? I believe I have. But tell me the story. Okay, so the the peanut and the monkey thing is just I don't know a lot about that because it was kind of just a blurb in this book that I was reading. But um, it was really the way that they discovered the mirror neurons was because they were feeding this they were feeding monkeys peanuts and then they were measuring the response in the brain as far as like how euphoric they were becoming. And they were measuring like the endorphins and the dopamine response from the peanut because the monkeys really like the peanuts. But then what happened was the the person ate a peanut and the monkey by witnessing the person eat the peanut had the same effect in the brain. And that's the way that they discovered mirror neurons. And that is my extent of what I know about the monkey and the peanut. Although I just think it's a really funny and interesting way of discovery because it was through this monkey and the peanut. But what I get really jazzed about is the hundredth monkey effect, because it, if, we, if we're talking about consciousness and we're talking about the mind and we're talking about brainwaves and we're talking about a whole bunch of stuff that like, to be honest, we really don't know anything. We've got like tons of theories and, and they're, they're all the way from, you know, very grounded theory rooted in science all the way to the spectrum of far out there spiritual concepts. Right. And they're all equally fascinating. Fascinating. And so the hundredth monkey effect was, it was written by, I want to say by Malcolm Gladwell in one of his books. And what it was, is there was these monkeys on the coast of Japan and the monkeys were eating sweet potatoes and they didn't like the taste, they didn't like it when there was sand all over the potatoes. So some of the younger monkeys began to wash the potatoes and they preferred the washed potatoes. So they started teaching their mothers and, and the older monkeys how to wash the potatoes. And when the monkeys, when the number of monkeys that were washing potatoes got to a certain critical mass, which they called the hundredth monkey, then the monkeys on the other island simultaneously started to wash their potatoes without any instruction. And so what I find very fascinating about this 
is like how often people in circles of writing books or personal development, spiritual growth will talk of feeling like they receive downloads. You know, if you're writing, you've probably experienced this. It's like from out of nowhere, all of a sudden you feel like you know information and you have no idea why you know that. And it's really an interesting phenomenon, but I think that that the human mind, and they are studying this in humans and finding it also to be true. So once a certain collective of humans begin to think in a certain way, other humans will collectively or just simultaneously begin to have those thoughts. And so now whenever I when whenever I feel like I'm getting a download, I, I think, wow, it's like I'm the hundredth monkey. <laughs> and I'm I'm getting this new information. And and as we see movements grow and as we see consciousness expand and you know the way that our 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 world is shifting, it, it just it's so fascinating. I could think about it literally all day, every day. And um I don't know, like are we becoming a hive mind? Is, is like, I can't take it that far. Obviously that's a joke, but it's just kind of like, Hmm, something to think about. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast from planet money last night and they had a new host on, um, but she was like, you know, I started having stoner thoughts and I was like, what's a stoner thought. Right. And then she explained the stoner thoughts. Like, why is it that once a bunch of people start thinking about something like a bunch more start thinking about it? So yeah, stoner thoughts are, you know, exactly what we're talking about there. But you know, I know it sounds super funny. And it sounds like maybe it's an over in the stoner thought being, but going to the point of what we said about brain science and things like this, like, we know this happens, we don't know how it happens. We really, I mean, and so I'm an empiricist, right, in the sense where scientific, you know, um, scientific thinking, like, love to pull in data of the world. Like, I live in Portland, I, and I, I can go into woo areas. Um, and, like, as an empiricist, when I look out in the world, I say, this is a phenomenon that happens. I can't dismiss it because I don't have an explanation for it, right? I can't say, well... That there, we don't have a cause for that, so my observation or these mini documentations of this thing like doesn't count. We, you know, I'm just like I don't understand it, and so it's super fascinating. And you know, as you were explaining that, I was thinking about um, your book, Conscious Communications. And so, for readers, go pick this up. It's a great book, great book. Um, actually, I'm gonna let you tell the story. Um, tell us about the words to remove from your language um, and and uh -huh. what effect that has. So this is a this is a great segue into the book because as we've been talking about all the things that we don't know about the brain, well there are some things we do know. And it's like okay, why is this so important? Because we can take the things that we do know to be true and we can begin to apply them to our lives and we can have results based on the knowledge that we do have. And so the way that I came up with the do not say list is because, as you mentioned, I own this collection agency. Well, I opened the agency very, very young at 24. And from the beginning, I wanted to I wanted to do collections differently than the rest of the industry. So I started taking a sales approach. I thought that I'm going to sell people on the idea of paying their debt. Well, that failed. And you know, the reason it failed is because it doesn't address the real issue about debt, which is the shame and unworthiness associated with the with the debt. And and sort of I I, I learned a couple of things through personal development, and one of them was always know your outcome. And so I, I came back to the office, and one day I looked at the phone, and I had my biggest aha moment when I said, I want my outcome to be the next person who calls is going to be happier at the end of the call than they were at the beginning. And that moment changed the entire rest of my life because over time I started 
paying attention to what words triggered people and understanding that people just by the way, just by the fact that they had to call or talk to a debt collector meant that they were already triggered coming into the interaction. And so what I did was just like figure out how can I make them happy? And so the do not say list is a list of words that we never say in the office, which are no, not, can't, won't, however, and unfortunately. And it's a really interesting thing because I'm literally running a business without saying those words. And um, it's interesting, but it works because what it does is you then replace those words with words that are going to build confidence, rapport, and trust with the customer that triggers actually their opposite system, which is the rest and digest, or what we know as the parasympathetic nervous system. And so I was doing that for about 10 years. And then when I decided I wanted to write a personal development book, I really started to study more the effect on not just with communications with other people in these words, but also the effect that it has on ourselves. And the the research is there and all of, I mean, even, even I was just even reading in a book last night that, that there's a, I believe it's a Harvard study that was just done in 2014 that said that prescription medication works better when there is an auto-suggestion of po- positivity given to the patient when from like directly, even if it's just something of, oh, this medication is is really known to work well, that patient is more likely to recover and recover quickly. So Seth Godin has a really great um, podcast episode on his Akimbo podcast called Don't Fear the Placebo, right? That that goes into this much, much more where to, to go on to this auto-suggestion thing. So like when we, even when we know it's a placebo, it still has the same effect, Right. Um, or like, so it, listen to the podcast, we'll link up to it. But yeah, there's this, this idea that we are primed for certain types of experiences. Now, what I was thinking about as we were talking about neuro neurons and how, you know, you eat, like you eat the peanut and all of a sudden I'm happy, like as if I eat the peanut is if you've ever actually tried to have a real yes centric conversation, a real positive centric conversation when someone is trying to come in triggered and things like that, it actually is really hard for them to have that negative conversation because they don't have the hooky points that you would normally have. Like if there's no, no, you know, however, unfortunately, so on and so forth, the conversation shift in a way. And I, in some ways, I think it's kind of like the mirror neurons thing. It's like, wait a second, I have to adjust to a different game here because the game I thought where I was going to say, I can't pay today. Right. And you're going to, but I can pay 50 bucks tomorrow. Right. Type of thing. If I thought I was going to have to fight for that and you're like, okay, like, Let's do, let's get that set up. All of a sudden you're like, oh crap, like what do I do? Right? <laughs> what do I do in this scenario, you know? Well, I think what's important to understand is that so it's more than just a brain response. It's more than just the nervous system because when and this does not just apply for debt collections. This is all of life, okay? That someone cannot be in you cannot have both the activation of problem-solving areas of your brain working at the same time as fight or flight is working. Because of the way that the the nutrients are going to pump to all of the things that allow you to escape because the whole reason we have a fight or flight is for survival back when we were running from the saber-toothed tiger. We needed to be able to escape or fight or flee or whatever. 
And we needed to do that very quickly. So all of our energy, all of our power needed to be going to our muscles and we need to be able to get quick. So that means that the, the blood actually pumps less to the area, to the organs and to the brain that is the thinking. So we don't, we're not in a space where we can think of a solution when we're, we're geared up to go into the boxing ring because we're in this fight or flight. But the thing is, and here's what I find really fascinating about the nervous system is we're actually being triggered all day, every day, because every time our cell phone goes off, every time, you know, we're just bombarded constantly with these things that are keeping us in a low level fight or flight all of the time. And if we're not actively doing something to distract ourselves from that world that's became overly noisy, then we're really going with the result of that is we become overreactive people in general. And I know I found myself doing that. Um, as a matter of fact, my brother kind of called me on it several years ago, which was one of the reasons I can understand this so much. But like going back to those words, so our job is, I call it a frequency scale of emotions, but we really need to get, we need to get people up the frequency scale to where they're they're neutral or even ready to be receptive to the solution because they can't hear us if they're still in fight or flight. And so we have to make them feel okay. And then once they feel okay, then we can start talking about the solution, but we can't reverse those steps. It will never work. It will never work. Um, there's a freeze option here and the yes. freeze option happens when actually you can't figure out what to do, like everything. And, and so when she's saying you can't be in a solution generating and a problem dwelling perspective at the same time, we, we can, but what causes is that freeze where you just can't do anything because your blood doesn't know where to go. Your neurons don't know where to go. And you just kind of sit there looking funny at the screen. So like know that that's an option, just not a very useful option. That's just a signal that you need to pick which brain state you're going to be in. Let's go for the positive brain state, if at all possible. So I'm curious, though, because there you've learned how to do over the phone people talking to you about money, and they're shamed, and they are afraid, and they've got all sorts of stories about that. You've learned to dial up the frequency to problem, the, the emotional frequency, such that they can hear problem generation. So I'm curious, what are the universal ways that we can do that for ourselves that you've learned um, to reverse engineer? You know, it's it's really just the exact same thing. And I think that one of the reasons that, first of all, there are many, many, many ways to achieve your goals and just to become a more satisfied person in general and live a life that's meaningful and, and, and happy. And um, words is just one way that made sense to me because it, it's more complicated when we get talking about just a, you know, a human being and they're all their interpersonal crap that they've built up over decades is that you, you, you pick a starting point. And so if that starting point can be words, one of the first things you want to do is you just want to shut off the valve of the negative words to yourself. And so what that looks like is, and I actually wrote a process because I, I, this, I'm thinking of this because you mentioned the freeze, because I've done all this research into procrastination and like why we procrastinate. And there's this like overwhelm component, but there's also things that you can do, um, from a neuroscientific standpoint that will bring you out of it and bring you out of it quickly. And it's all about the ability to create dopamine and serotonin in the brain, because that's what makes you feel better. But when we're, when we sometimes, you know, we need to have a starting point. And so just becoming aware of the words that you're saying. And my own story is that for 10 years, I wanted to write a book. And I know you're writing now, so you probably will relate to this. For 10 years, I wanted to write a book. But um, I would go around and I would say to anybody who would listen to me, I want to write a book 
but I'm not a writer. And the thing is that words are like a mirror to our subconscious programming. And it's like when you hear me say the words, I want to write a book, that you can see that written on my soul, like a purpose, that I have come into this life with this idea that I need to get this information out into the world. But I have a very big problem when the next words out of my mouth are, but I'm not a writer. Because those words are also revealing that somewhere, somehow in my past, I developed a belief system that that convinced me that I am not capable of, of creating a book. And so as long as my belief system is I'm not a writer, I will never write anything because that belief will stop me. I call them barrier beliefs. You know, a lot of people say limiting beliefs, but to me, it's like it builds a brick wall between you and what you want. And so I knew I needed to change that. So first I was like aware of what I was saying, but the way out of it was really to invest in myself. So, and and there's all kinds of ways out of it. You know, I chose to go to a writer's workshop and I went to this writer's workshop and I wrote a short story about my daughter who passed away in 1993. I wrote about my son who's on the autism spectrum and just like what a lonely world it can be raising a son without a rule book. And then also I paralleled both of these things with my roller coaster journey as an entrepreneur. And at the end of that short story, when I read it to the class, no one made fun of me. No one criticized me. No one said I'm not a writer. In fact, it was the opposite. People were chasing me down wanting to hug me, wanting to talk further, wanting to encourage me. And so now my brain had the evidence that it needed to see that that belief was not true. And once I had that evidence, I could then change my words, which then changes the thoughts. It's like a feedback wheel, Mm -hmm. which then changed the choices that I was making. And within a year from that original workshop, I had a book deal with Hay House. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. It's still monkey peanut in a lot of ways. It is. Uh, it, it is. It's subconscious. This is where I was saying it's the stuff that we do know, mm-hmm. which is we understand neural pathways. We mm-hmm. understand, you know, I had this thing. This is like a silly way to explain it, but I think people will get it. I, I went, I got a massage the other day and afterwards I went to the bathroom and when I walked in, I turned the bathroom light on. And the thing is, it wasn't dark in the bathroom. And I questioned myself and I said, why did I turn the light on? There's a window and it's not dark. Well, I realized I turned the light on because nine times out of 10, when I walk into a bathroom, there's no window and it's dark. So that automatic movement of my hand going to the switch was running on a program in my subconscious, which is like everything in life. But what's really fascinating about that, Charlie, is we're the ones who get to install the program. We're the ones who get to choose the programming that we're living our life by. And that's truly, to me, the concept of free will. But we're, we're dealing with, and I think, that, I think that humans understand that innately at birth. But then what I think happens is we understand these thoughts, but then over time, and especially in our childhood, we're programmed with all of these cultural beliefs, with all of these, you know, family of origin beliefs, and there's our, our education that we receive sort of takes these natural human instincts away from us. Mm-hmm. And I, I find it fascinating um, that I was just reading a book recently, and it was about like... It was about the the history of certain thought patterns, especially things like law of attraction and new thought theory and these kinds of things. And I think that I always 
thought it's fun to go back and tra- trace that all the way back to like ancient Egypt or or the Sumerians or however far you can trace that back. But actually, the research showed that that's not the case. And I was very fascinated by this. But what what the research did show is that even when people are cut off from that those spiritual teachings, that they will eventually on their own come up with them again. And so what that tells me is if I took a group of children and left them on a deserted island, they would eventually have this thought process on their own. They would eventually begin to understand the nature of how and why we're sort of creating our, our own realities by the way we think and believe. And I think that, and I know that what I said was just really far out there. So, but I just want to kind of dial it down to say, well, what does that mean for us? What it means for us is that this is something that we innately know. It's part of our instincts. It's just like fight or flight is an instinct, but so is these thought processes. And we have the power to change any of the beliefs in our mind, and it just needs to start from somewhere. So even if what you can do is become aware of the words you're saying and then just not say those words anymore, you'll begin to notice a change. But where you can really expand or 10x your growth is by creating daily practices where you are deciding the, like I always call him planting a seed. If you can do the work just to plant a seed of a new thought or a new belief in your subconscious, then that is a lot easier to grow that seed than to try to eliminate your old neural pathways, because those are there right? They're they're there. And we don't need to go to 10 years of therapy to figure out who in the second grade told me that I could not be a writer. That doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, what's fascinating about this is obviously we humans are multidimensional creatures, right? Type of entities. And it it reminds me of the conversation that I was having with Stan Tatkin um, earlier about why relationships are so hard, especially couple relationships are so hard. And there's a yes and here. The and is we are um, reactive emotional creatures first, right? We are thinking contemplative, you know, compassionate creatures second. Like that's the slower of the functions of, of what it means to be human. And so, you know, if you walk into a situation and something triggers you, you're more likely to re- react in a certain way rather than having that thoughtful, like, here is who I am in the world. I am this type of creature, right, that, that believes that all humans are great and that every possibility, you know, is, is valid. Like, you're more likely to be like, dude, like, why'd you cut me in the line? What, why are you being such a butthole, right? That's, that's your first reaction. And that's actually because of the types of beings that we are. That is writing at the same time as this other nature where we can have this sort of nature of free will, where we can, you know, step back and say, oh, that person cut me in line likely because they've got a three-year-old over there in the corner throwing a temper tantrum. And if that kid doesn't get whatever they want in the next minute, like all hell is going to break loose, right? They know it and they're trying to protect us, everybody from that. But that wasn't communicated. Like you can get to that point, but the first reaction is what an asshole. Like I was standing in line and you just jumped in front of me, right? And so that's the really thing that we have to remember that we are these creatures that can override and debug our neural processes, but it's not what we automatically do, right? Um, and it takes that work to say, okay, I'm going to have a new thought process so that next time or the hundredth time, which is actually more like it, right? You don't you don't say I'm going to start believing my I'm going to start believing different things about people. And then immediately have that take root. Like it's like that hundredth person that does something like that. And you're just like, ah, they're having a bad day. I'm not. Right. So let's let them get taken care of. I'm going to get my coffee 30 seconds later. 
And the end of the day, it doesn't matter. But again, in between, we are this creature that went from being immediately reactive and frustrated to being the one that just honestly doesn't care that much that they had to wait 30 seconds more for their coffee. Does that make sense? Yes. And it sounds like the, I mean, it sounds like almost growing the compassion muscle in our, in our subconscious. And, um, I think that one of the things that I looked at and researched was actually growing that compassion for ourselves because as much or at whatever level we judge other people. So there's a judgment involved when we're talking about the person who cut us in line, you know, it's kind of, this could become a Larry David episode really quick, right? (laughs) um, the, The thing is we judge ourselves even more harshly and the and and I feel like this thing about judgment really goes with our own morals and values because if someone if someone cuts in front of you in line, we have a belief that there is a value system or morals that you wait your turn. But we're the ones who installed those belief systems because why is that true? And I and I realize it makes total common sense that we orderly in an orderly fashion wait our turn. But really it's it's like where did those thoughts come from? Where do those beliefs come from? You know, why do we believe, or at least if, if you're from my generation, then, and I'm like a, a Gen Gen X, the belief was you go to school, you get a diploma, you go to college, you get married, you have a, you get, have kids, you have a career, you buy the house, you, you have a mortgage, you, you, you know, then you get a divorce and now you're like starting life all over. You're having your midlife crisis. And it's sort of like, there's a belief in that. You know, and now I'm seeing a generation of people who are fascinating to me because they're rejecting of that. And I'm so happy and excited that people don't feel like this is a have to situation or that we're we're living up to certain cultural expectations because that's one way of breaking away the belief system. And I know for me, like raising an autistic child is really the thing that shook off every belief system that I ever had about anything. Because that child, his mind runs on a completely different operating system than mine. And and I love, actually, one of his doctors said to me, or he said to my son, his name is Keegan. He said, Keegan, he said, imagine that you're a computer and that the majority, and he said, when you think about computers, the majority of people have PCs and then some people have Macs. And he goes, well, think of it like this. You're a Mac and everyone else is a PC. And then he looked at my son and he said, well, which one's better? And that was really an important moment for me. But like really understanding that these belief systems and expectations that we have, they're they're really just coming from generations of programming. And what if we didn't have that? What if we could just install our own beliefs? Like how much freer would we be? Well, there's two things. Because when we talk about this installation and reinstallation of beliefs, sometimes what we forget is that even deciding consciously deciding, you know what, this whole wait in line thing, yeah, it's generations, but it makes sense. I'm going to do it, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, and, uh, or, was, else, or else we'd all just stand around and not know whose turn it was. Yeah, and it'd be like <laughs> we live in Portland or something, right? Um, uh-huh. <laughs> but, you know, but even still, like, let's roll, let's roll back, you know, 35, 40 years ago, which unfortunately I don't see it as much as we used to. I'm from the South. Most, most listeners know this. But, like, there used to be exceptions to things. Now, there was a lot of exceptions. I won't go into all of them. But let's, let's go sort of the Brady Bunch sort of vision where, like, you were in line. But someone who was, you know, elderly or someone who was handicapped came in, like you would like let them go before you, right? As a common thing. So the line, the idea that there's a line and there's a queue was motivated by these was was sort of mitigated by these other values. Like sometimes that happens now, which I love, but other times it doesn't, right? Where it's like, 
you know, they've been waiting for 70 years. They can wait longer. Right. And I'm like, what, whatever. But anyways, you know, we, we have, I know people can be crazy. People can be crazy, um, but they have their own reasons for doing what they do. Right. Um, but my, what I'm saying on that one is we can modify those lines of code as it were to say, you know what, this line of code, this whole standing in the line thing makes sense. We're going to do it. Right. Um, but we can also re reevaluate that and say, you know what, like if we notice like this mom that's there by herself and she's got like the toddler and then she's got the baby in the, in the, um, in the walker and she's got all this going on. Like maybe like it makes sense for her to go to the front of the line and get whatever she needs. Or maybe it makes sense for us to help her. Even if we don't know her, you gotta be weird or you gotta be careful about that. Cause it can be weird, but we can change these sort of ways. And it just requires us to be conscious of that moment to where we're standing in line and going on the automatic sort of auto, going on the autopilot versus saying what's really going on here and yes. how can we make the situation better for folks around us? And if, if we take that, what you just said, which was very well and nicely articulated and we apply it to something important in our life, like, okay, so I am supposed to do this thing in life, get a degree, whatever, but because that's what I'm supposed to do, just like standing in line. But then the, what if you're the person that's like, but I don't like school and I feel called, I feel I have this inner thing that's growing inside of me and I want to follow that instead. That can be like the equivalent of the mom with the kids. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, which one do you choose? You know, do you do the thing that you're supposed to do because that's what we all do? And it's weird and awkward when we don't do that thing. But Sometimes it's amazing when you do that thing. Yeah. You know, I was, as I was working on the book, I was thinking about the, the best way to say this. So I'm going to, I'm going to work it out with you and listeners. You get to hear it about a year earlier, but like when you really look and do the research, right. And I won't give all the statistics, but we can say that most people are unhappy with their jobs and are disengaged with their jobs. It's something in the realm of 65 to 70%, depending, or 6 to 75%, depending upon what's counted as engaged, right? When you look at how many people are in debt, right? Um, now there's a little debt and then there's a lot of debt. And there's a people like we are on different scales, but a lot of folks are in a lot of debt, right? When you look at how many people are stressed and need to take uh, medications to monitor the anxieties and things like that. And you start to say, okay, that's the common choice. That's the conventional choice leads to you not liking your job. Um, you not um, being able to pay your bills and being in debt and you being unhappy to the degree in which you need to take medications for it. That's the common path. Like, and so here's the funny thing when we look at it as an, from an economist perspective, um, it's really weird because we we when we take that perspective, we can't predict that any single person will have those three things happen to them all at once. But we can look at the aggregate as a whole, and it still holds true. My whole point here is, if you're looking around and you're saying, "What what is the common choice?" Like all these shoulds that I have on myself. Just remember that if you follow the common choice, and especially in the United States, what that's likely going to mean is that you're going to end up unhappy with your career. You're going to end up in debt and in an uncomfortable way and unhappy with your life to a degree that may require medical, uh, medical and pharmaceutical help there. That's a really depressing thought, I know, right? And when we look at it that way, but that's, I think, where we can find this space to where it's like, you know, 
you don't have to just do that. We have brain science, we have research that shows a lot of different things, but it does take that moment of like saying, am I going to turn the light on or not, right? Applied to larger choices. And that's just a metaphor, obviously. So uh, it's, a, it's a great metaphor because that's how simple it is, is just taking that moment and deciding not to follow the status quo. One of the things that I've been talking about a lot lately is this idea of purpose because I'm seeing it, especially with the millennial, the millennial generation, and there is this innate need to make an impact. And there is a need to be work, be doing mission-driven work. And what I'm finding is that this that's a lot of pressure. And this purpose, this big P word, as I call it, has become this thing that's elusive and behind a curtain. And it's like we have to go through this like some sort of hero's journey to discover what our purpose is, because that's this is what this is why we don't know our purpose, because we always followed the status quo. The status quo will never lead you to your purpose. Taking the uncommon path will lead you to your purpose. Going against the grain will lead you to your purpose. And I'm here to tell you right now, right here today, that the way that you discover your purpose is you dial back into the things that you're naturally talented at. I'm talking about your just the things that you were good at as a child, the things that you just enjoy doing. For it to be a purpose, you're good at it, you like doing it. That's it. That's the only requirements. And if you just find a way to feed those strengths, because see, I was raised to believe that I needed to overcome my weaknesses. Mm-hmm. The truth is I need to feed my strengths. And so the more that you feed your strengths, whether it's writing, whether it's speaking, whether it's blogging, whether it's whether it's math, whether it's teaching, it doesn't matter whether it's nursing, it doesn't matter what it is, but the more that you just engage time doing those things, whether you're being paid for it or not, is not the point. Some of the best things I've ever done for myself, I did for free. Um, but the more you do those things, you're actually going to strengthen the neural networks and make yourself even better about those th- at those things so that it will become your source and your foundation of the prosperity that I think we're all looking for. And so my whole point in saying this is like, I agree with you so much about, and I, I, all that research you talked about too, the numbers and the statistics, I actually had that very, those very same statistics in the book proposal that I wrote for conscious communications, mm-hmm. because that was one of the things that really fueled me was like, wait a second, how do I get people out of this rote behavior? And to understand it does not have to, we don't have to lead ourselves in that direction. And I am living proof of that because I was out on my own at 16 years old. I had no guidance and very little resources. You know, I had this child that I mentioned who passed away and she was born with a very profound brain damage um, that left her blind and deaf and unable to suck a bottle, which meant that when I was 19 years old, I was literally living in and out of the children's hospitals, uh, sleeping on the emergency room floor. I had, I had nothing. And I was able to recover from that and start my first business at 24. I really was put in situations where I almost couldn't go the status quo because those opportunities were taken away from me. And so I was forced into this situation to follow the uncommon path. But now looking back over my journey, which I said has not been a graceful one, I have learned the things that I can pass on to other people and say, wait a second. Here's where you start. And sometimes it's so simple. It can be as simple as having a gratitude practice because the more, and it's things you're doing that aren't the obvious. So, you know, when I was growing up and I was growing up in the Midwest, there was sort of this Christian, Christian belief system where I lived and it wasn't extreme or anything, but I definitely had the belief that I should pray 
at night. And I should, it was like, I, it was almost like I owed this debt of gratitude to this deity in the sky. And what I realized was mm, gratitude is so powerful, but not because I owe this creator a debt of gratitude, but because when you are being grateful and you have that as a daily practice, what you're doing is you are planting all of those seeds in your neural pathways. You are, you are poising your subconscious mind to look for things in your world that you can be good and grateful about. And then what happens over time when you have that as a daily practice, what you start to become aware of all the opportunities around you. So all of a sudden, I, I like to say sometimes, like if you just take one step in a new direction. If you just, if you just do this one new thing, the universe, God, or whatever you call it, it's like it swoops down and it meets you halfway and it happens all the time. And we call it synchronicity, but it's the coolest thing ever. It is the coolest thing ever. It reminds me of um, process theologians call the process of prayer, um, being in partnership and unity with the Godhood or whatever you might want to say that. So it's not that there's some other being out there, <laughs> Right. In in the way that we would normally think about it, but reflecting on gratitude and praying and thinking about these these essences are actually being in partnership with with that thing in that way. And so it's it's a really interesting way to think about it. What if about. it's a mirror neuron? I mean, like, I'm, it just, could kinda, be. Yeah. I'm just kind of geeking out and Monkey saying like, what I love saying I, I love saying what if all the time. But yeah, what if the, the God presence or whatever it is, is a is a, a mirror neuron. And that's why we were created in that image. I mean, I don't know. I just made that up. So I'm not quoting research here. No, we're not. Sounds kind of cool. We're not. But, you know, the thing about it is there are different ways to show up and be in these practices of transformation, right? Yes. I um, mean, you could think about them as externally motivated. I'm doing this because, like, um, this being or this, you know, um, this personal development teacher or this whatever is like telling me I should do it and I should be grateful. Or you can look at it from a sort of internal perspective. Like, actually, I'm developing my own internal gratitude engine. And the point yes. of doing all this is to develop that internal engine because it's good for all parties involved and it's not thing external of myself in the world in that it's way. It's so true because, and I've been saying this a lot lately as well, but I, when I think about, I love the word manifestation because like it can be used in so many ways, but like we're, we're, we're creating our lives. We're manifesting things. We're in charge of our own destinies. But when you're doing that from a place of empowerment, what you will create will be so much just more everything than what you will create when you're in a place of disempowerment. If you think of that, your level of empowerment is going to be equal to what you're able to create. It's just sort of like understanding that I hope is motivation to say, how can I become more empowered? And what does that word even mean? Because it's been a kind of a trendy buzzword lately. But I think to me, it's like when you, when you understand that you're the one making the choices that it's okay to say no. It's okay. What whatever whatever someone else thinks of you doesn't matter. That releasing the judgments, you know, forgiving yourself. I recently went through a process where and it was because I read it in a book and I had um, a lot of times I talk about this concept of alignment because I feel like a lot of spiritual teachers say that and it's like what is that? It's so confusing. But um I thought about alignment and it being like thoughts, words, and actions all moving in the same direction. And then I started thinking about this forgiveness piece because I think that forgiveness is something that will keep you out of alignment. And so I decided to write this list of all of the things that I had ever done in my life that I feel are unforgivable. And it was incredible the things I put on the list because what I realized by going through this process is 
the reason I'm unable to forgive myself for those things is when you go against your own morals and values, like when as women will do this, well, that's okay for her to do that, but I would never, I would never do that thing until you did that thing. That's the thing you won't forgive yourself for because you went against your own set of morals and values. But that unforgiveness of yourself and that thing you did is really keeping you out of alignment with what you, with, with that empowerment piece. And so there's so many, you know, different ways that we can be working on ourselves. And this is why it's a journey. This is why it's small pivots over time. So maybe you get the gratitude thing down and you get that engine running and then you, you get your choice engine running where you're always making choices that are leading you in the direction of what you want, which I call cleanser clog. And then you can get this forgiveness piece. It's all a piece. And every time you're Every time you're moving in that direction, it's like you're installing better programming in that subconscious. Yeah, and you're installing better programs, and you'll be able to do more in the world. Here's this piece that I that we I don't know that we talk about it nearly as much as we should. So we're going to talk about it today, real briefly. Um, what happens is as you start making in, making these improvements to all these engines, which I can't, apparently is the metaphor we're running with, right? Um, you're able to do more, which requires those engines to operate better which requires you to work on them even more, which makes you able to do more. So they require more work. Like there's a point where people are like, I thought I just had to do this habit thing. Like, and it would get me to a place to where I didn't have to do the thing, but it turns out that I have to do the thing even more now than I had to when I started to. Right. And when I started and it's like, yeah, that's kind of how it works. Right. Because the, the more, um, the bigger the field you're playing on, the bigger the chances are that you might miss you know, miss your target on whatever it is, right? Which means you're going to have to practice self-compassion all that much more because you you made a big, you, you failed in a bigger way than when you failed in a smaller way. And so you just have to keep practicing these things over and over as you as you become more accomplished and as you become a more um, more powerful self in this world. I think that's that's really brilliant. And there there is, like, it's always growing. And we're always growing, you're yeah. making me want to get my Hoberman sphere out and well, you, you know, I yeah, I'm in front of you and a meditation retreat today, so we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up. But what I did want to talk about briefly is, you know, we've talked about all these different ways one can change their life, right? Change your thoughts, you can change your activities, you can stop saying no, and what often happens to people is they get overwhelmed by all the different things that they might do. Um, you've been thinking about your core four goals, and I think this is a really good way to sort of sliding that in and give people a, a a way to get some grip on the way that they want to change their life. So kind of walk us through that a little bit and how that might apply for people who are wanting to make that change. Sure. Well, and I agree with what you said. If you look at all of the to-do listy things to do in, in self-growth and development, it's too overwhelming. If you just focus on one thing, so if you focus on one thing and you just get really good at doing that thing and you learn that inside, outside, backwards and forward, you can move to another thing. But if you try to take on too much at once, you're really going to overwhelm yourself. And the core four came about because I, my life's been in this transition period because of my book coming out and it's doing very well. And, and I, I, I started getting pulled in way too many di different directions. And so my freeze response was activated because I was overwhelmed and that just leads to procrastination. Well, what I realized was I needed to create a core four, which is me, which means at my core, what are the four most important things I need to be focused on right now? This is different than a goal because I look at a goal as something like I need to finish writing my book where the, the focus of the core four is 
what are the things I need to do to finish my book? And then I made a list of four things um, in my personal life. And those are the things that I now put all of my energies to. So if I'm doing something that is outside of those core four, I call it raising a yellow flag. And now that the yellow flag is raised, I need to say, okay, why am I doing this? And is it in alignment with these core four? And it's really allowed me, it's it's simplified my, my decision-making process. So we have a core four in my business. We have a core four in my brand. And I have a core four. In fact, even departments in my office now all have a core four. And it's really changed everything. The amount of overwhelm is almost but disappeared. And it's allowed our decision-making to, it's just changed everything. I'm so excited about it, but I'll give you an example just so the listeners can get a picture if they want to figure out their own core four. So for my business that I own, um, the, the core four are sales, industry involvement, custom, custom trainings, and using our branding. So we are taking all of our energy and putting it towards those four things. And so that makes it us able to say yeses to things that support those four things. And we say no to things that are outside of those things. That's fantastic. Listeners, you probably heard me talk about only five things before or no more than five things. We're saying the same thing, right? In the sense of if you ever have compiled in any time slice, like the projects you want to do this week, if there are 17 things on that project, on that list, you're n- unlikely to get them done, right? You're probably going to get three to five done, right? At the Right. Weekly. You have to... You have to triple down on what really matters because if you're trying to do everything, you're really not getting anything done. Yeah, or you'll be over, overwhelmed and burning uh, burning the candle at both end and pushing yourself towards burnout. So um, you can get a considerable amount of things done when you focus on the fewer things that matter as opposed to trying to be everywhere for everything for everyone. So we're saying the same thing different language. It's still, it's still the truth. So yeah, um, as we start, as you start thinking about how you want to make changes in your life, like don't think about, I mean, you can do the dump of all the things you want to change. That's fantastic, right? Do that. But when you move to the deciding on what you're going to act on, call that list down, call that list down to three to five things. Four is, is, you know, um, how Mary rolls code for, I'm going to say no more than five. Cause I know you're creative people and you're going to reject the idea and you're going to have to have some other thing. So, okay. Right. Um, pare it down and focus more of your time and energy and attention on those, get the success, get the change, and then roll into the next one way better than just spinning your wheels and going all over the place. So, we're going to go ahead and start wrapping this one up again. I know I'm in front of you and your meditation retreat. So as the guest on today's show, Mary, you get to lead or leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge, depending upon whichever, which one most resonates with you. So based upon what we've talked about today, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do? Hmm. Well, I'm going to make it an invitation. And so do I just say what it is? Yeah, you say what it is. Okay. Well, I want to invite the listeners to think about the concept that everything you say, everything you do, every word that comes out of your mouth, every action you take in every thin sliced moment of life is either creating a deeper connection or it's driving a disconnection. That is fantastic. Mary, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, Good work on the book. I, I read it before this this interview. Um, great, great work on that. I'm glad it's doing um, it's doing the work it needs to do out in the world. And thank you for writing it. Thank you. Yeah, and if anyone wants to look up the book, it's on Amazon. I always say if you just uh, read the description and some reviews, you'll know right away if it's the book for you. All righty. 
Okay, listeners, so you heard it from Mary. Think about the words that you use. They either create connection or they create disconnection. Um, and what I'll add to that is sometimes creating disconnection is a good thing. So think about how the words that you use um, are creating the life that you want to live. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that'll help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.